And now, coming to you live from Spokane, Washington, and the 73rd World Science Fiction Convention, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Nebula Award-winning writer Elliot de Bedard on the Coot Street Podcast! And here we are, Elliot, at least, and I are in very smoky Spokane, Washington, which is <laughs> apparently everything surrounding us is on fire. Uh, and you probably have seen by now uh, YouTube videos and, uh, and, and and blog posts. Everybody yesterday was out taking a picture of this orange sun in midday. Blood red sun, yeah. It was, it's completely that apocalyptic. That's ominous, doesn't it? All, all things it's, considered. It's, it's, it's very SF, actually. It, it really is. It's, a, it's the kind of sun to, to help us introduce Elliot to Bernard. It's the kind of sun I sort of pictured in the House of Shattered Wings. <laughs> There's no sun. That's there true. are too many dust clouds. That's true. <laughs> oh. <laughs> anyway, it's it's a it's a it's the most appropriate setting for a science fiction convention I think I've ever been in. In that sense, but Spokane is a, outside of that. I mean, uh, I went out today and, and and saw some of the sites, and there's a big rock formation called the Pitcher in the Bowl, and the river looked terrific. But it looked like post-nuclear landscapes. You couldn't see a half mile down the river for the smoke. And a friend of mine who was who was sitting right across from us and listening to the podcast actually had his mask on to keep the uh, particulate matter out of his lungs. So it's a little ominous. Okay, but then you know that that's as you say that's you know very appropriate. This is a post-apocalyptic time, or at least it you know is cast that way in a lot of fiction. However, it's, it it is also a great time because this is the week of, or recording in the week of, the release of your brand new novel, Elliot, The House of Shattered Wings, for which great congratulations. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to be getting an awful lot of attention, which must be very satisfying. Can I say scary? Can I... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm a bad author. <laughs> well, I mean, we were talking in the car on the way over, the Reacher Infinity, I think, has a, an Elliot story in it. Yes, it um, does, yeah. And and what we've been looking, what those of us have been following, your short, the short fiction, which is, to be honest, all I knew before I read The House of Shadows, not read the novels. But there was this unusual far future kind of Aztec, Chinese, Vietnamese culture, which was, it's, it's, it's brilliant by itself, and it won you a nebula and a Hugo, or just a nebula? Uh, two nebulas and a locus. Okay, that's great. Uh, and suddenly, The House of Shattered Wings comes out, and it's very different from that. Uh, and one of the things that fascinates me when people write novels that involve fallen angels, and you have to tell me, I don't think that's a spoiler because that's like page one. Um, so you're writing a kind of Miltonic, Blakean, at least it seems to derive from a Miltonic, Blakean kind of Christian fantasy, but it doesn't read like a Christian fantasy at all. Well, I mean, okay, for starters, uh, you have to remember that I'm French. So I know about Milton, but uh-huh. I've never actually read Milton. Um, and uh, Blake is one of those. I've read a few poems, but it's not really what I would call formative. If anything, okay. if anything is formative for the House of Shattered Wings, it would be classical nineteenth-century French novels like *The Count of Monte Cristo*, ah. um, *The Les Misérables*, um, early twentieth ones like Arsène Lupin, which has uh-huh. not been translated, but is a sort of gentleman thief. Arsène Lupin has been translated. Oh, yeah. Hanu Royanemi is based. Oh yeah. His novels completely. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I wrote, wrote Hanu a big detail letter that says, "I am so happy you wrote those books." And right. he was like, "No, he told me that." I was like, "I'm French. I've read them all." 
So what led you to set Shattered Wings in Paris? Um, well, um, I've, it dates back a few years. I was uh, sitting down with my agent and I had finished the Obsidian and Blood trilogy of Aztec Noir, the Aztec Noir thing. Um, so we sat down and we had a chat and my agent was like, um, I feel like, you know, you should write a novel that would hopefully be your breakout novel and that would be a little more commercial than the Aztec stuff, please. Basically. <laughs> um, and I was like, okay. Uh, and what I wanted to write was a urban fantasy that was set in Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, because a lot of the urban fantasy that I was reading was, at the time, actually all set in the US. That was yeah. before Rivers of London. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the ones that I'm aware of, I'm sure there were others that were less well-known. And I thought, hey, I can try having this um, dynasties of magicians at war in Paris in the 21st century. And so I read the first three chapters of that. I sent it to my agent. And a few months later, my agent said, look, we need to talk. Um, they're, they're perfectly competent. There's nothing wrong with them from a craft point of view, but your heart is not in this book. Oh, yeah. And I grumbled a lot because that's what I do. And then I sat down and I was like, damn him, he's right, as he usually is. Um, and I was like, I think one of the reasons why it's not working for me is because I think that it should be a little stranger. I think that the presence of magic should alter things more strongly. And the other reason that it is not working for me is um, I don't really know where the magic is coming from and I don't have a good handle on like um, what kind of myths, what kind of history it'd be based on, and it turns out that I really need that to mm-hmm. function as a writer. Mm-hmm. So um, I also had the short stories rattling in the drawer, which were also three to four years old, and I'd written them and trunked them, basically. They were set in this sort of pseudo uh, 19th century city uh, that was called Silver Spires, and they had uh, mm-hmm. people trafficking in fallen angel bones. And a friend of mine told me, why don't you put the two together? And I was like, hey, hmm. that wouldn't be dumb, actually. And while I was at it, I nuked Paris because, well, I, I don't really have a reasonable explanation <laughs> for that, but it sort of made everything feel better at the time. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, you always, not always, you often bring in, you know, your Vietnamese background into the stories as well. How important is it to bring that into what you're doing and to present a different perspective to readers? Because we do get such a standard white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male-derived kind of worldview. How important is it to you to give a different perspective and show a different part of the world, different kind of worldview in what you do? I think it's a very important thing for me. I think I'm... um I'm always writing for 10-year-old me, who was, mm-hmm. like, reading old books and, like, desperately latching on on mm-hmm. anybody who, like, looked like they might fit the bill of who I was personally. And, you know, not... I, I used to have a fixation on characters with dark hair for such a long time because there were so few of them around. And I was like, <laughs> you know, at least it looks sort of like me. And I thought I was the only one. And I had a chat with this other Asian girl but on live journalist. was like, me too! Where I was like... Okay, so it's not just me. No. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do is that show, I mean, I do two things. The thing is I really like to show that there are other perspectives because I think it, like, it's important to show that there's a wider world out there. Mm-hmm. And from a writerly point of view, I think having different perspectives in the same book prevents this from being in a preachy message kind of very blunt book. It's sort of like 
it's it's a technique that's um, it's very classically Chinese actually. Um, you present like different variation on the themes, different points of view on a theme, and then you let the reader make up their own mind, yeah. basically. And there is one character in The House of Shattered Wings who, who clearly brings in the Vietnamese perspective, his own background. He's an outsider in this hmm. group of outsiders, really. Yeah, that, that was very much a, like, not only a deliberate choice, but also like part mm. and parcel. And I know like one of the things that we discussed with my editor was um, she wanted me to remove a section of his background. And I was like... I can see why you're having the problem that you're having. She thought it was pointless. And I'm like, I can give a point to the background with that work because I feel this is important to mm. have in here. Mm. I mean, she was, she was entirely right that it was pointless and that, you know, either cut it or make it have a point. You can't just mm. have yeah. loose ends. I think the point is very clear. I think it's a very important character in the book. So, um, yeah. the, thing, the other thing that struck me about Paris, and we were talking in the car on the way over here, that... To some extent, at least in English language science fiction, Paris is amazingly underutilized compared to, say, London. I mean, you can, you can build a library of underground London, hidden London, occult London novels. I mean, Neil Gaiman has done occult London novels. Uh, Paul Cornell is doing occult London novels right now. You just go, oh, China Mieville has done. But Paris, I think, tends to draw writers more into the past. And I think it's because of what you talk about, Victor Hugo and that sort of thing. What I've seldom seen is a future Paris. And what, what made me fall in love with The House of Shattered Wings in the first chapter was the ruins of a department store that I'd been in, these great department stores in Paris that are 20th century, well, 19th century entities, but they are not artifacts of medieval Paris. I mean, there's a good chunk of it that's set in Notre Dame, obviously. But the idea that Paris can be ruined just like any other city was kind of like, yeah, Paris isn't just history. Paris... Might have a future. I feel like, you know, we should be democratic with this project. <laughs> also, I mean, for me, it was partly, um, it's not laziness so much as the fact that it's a city that I have lived in on and off sure. for most of my life and that I'm very familiar with. So it's, it, it sounds a bit perverse to say it that way, but it is a lot mm. better to the city. Well, is it also an element, I mean, you're saying this about need, you know, wanting to understand you know, understand the background of how the magic worked in the world and everything else. How much of it is the way it, that choosing someone like Paris that you know gives you a framework to world build on, and that world building then gives you your story to some degree? Uh, a lot, I think. I mean, I, I tend to work a lot by accretion of history and mythology, and even like uh, the science fiction stories. Where what I usually do is. I have a science fiction idea, and then I will layer on a fairy tale or something mm. that is not science fiction at all to give it a sort of different slant and an extra layer of, uh, I don't know, something that is unexpected. Yeah. Um, so um, with Paris, I mean, there's a lot of fascinating history, and there's a lot of um, a lot of the stuff that I mentioned is you know twisted versions of stuff that actually existed. I mean, there were Vietnamese people, for yeah. instance, brought over for both World War One and World War Two. Uh, and uh, and they were left adrift uh, at the end of World War Two for like close to ten years. Well, not adrift, more like indentured. But <laughs> uh, so um, you know, I kind of want to hold a sort of mirror up to history and say this is what I'm doing. And I feel like it it makes the world building richer for me. It like, gives me a sort of starting base. A you know a solid 
several under layers of stuff that I can build on. Yeah, fair enough. I can believe that. Um, <clears throat> have you? I'm curious as well. I mean, how long ago did you start writing uh, House of Broken Wings? Was it what three years ago? So I said wings. Sorry, three three years ago. Um, I don't have the dates in mind. Roughly, um, I would have said 2000. And- 11, 2012 for the first abortive draft, the one that didn't work. Mm-hmm. I didn't get to around to New King Paris until 2013, I think. And so how long has it been finished for now? Um, I finished the first draft in April 2014 or thereabouts. Uh, then it went through several rounds of crits and everything, and it mm-hmm. went on submission mid-July 2014. Yep. So right before the WorldCon. Okay. And then the WorldCon happened. And we sold it around October. Yep. But we got the offers around October, and then I wasn't allowed to say anything until things sure, came sure. to that. So officially, it's November. And when you sold it, did you already know what the second volume... How far were you in the second volume when the first volume was published, which is now? Okay, my editor is not listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I have... I, I am not actually, I mean, for volume two, I have, um, I know where some of the plot is going. I have important plot points that are already, for which I already uh, sowed the seeds in book one. Yeah. Um, I know some key elements and stuff, uh, but I am still working on uh, filling out some of the details that I need to build the rest of the plot, basically. But I tend to, um, when I have a synopsis of the book. Yeah. It's usually very, very far in the book writing process. I tend to write relatively fast first drafts. Uh, I mean, uh, if you compress time on House of Shattered Wings and forget a bit about the pregnancy and the baby in the middle, mm. um, it was written in about six months. Well, actually, that's something that we don't talk about very much like, in, in, in oh, these kind of the- things, but I'm curious to ask you, how has family life impacted on your ability to be a ability to write you know, your time to write and all that sort of thing because i mean i know you've you know you've had a child which is wonderful and we don't really talk much about how about the the additional pressure that puts on you to be able to maintain a professional writing career when you're also mm-hmm. trying to you know, deal with your own personal life how how stressful has that been it's i mean it's, it's certainly reorganized i mean not only my writing life, but obviously my life in general. Sure. It reorganized my life. Uh, and one of the things that I found out was that um, I needed to work in shorter chunks of time because, well, shorter chunks of time was basically all sure. that I had. But the thing that I also found out was that there were things I could do in shorter chunks of time. Um, so answering email, writing blog posts, doing revisions, yeah. doing rewrites. I cannot do first drafts in yeah. short chunks of time. So mm. uh, the solution that I came up with for House of Shattered Wings was uh, I have a one-hour commute on the metro, and I have this thing called an Alpha Smart Neo, which is the sort of like on-off keyboard mm. that I used for banging out first drafts, and I would write mornings and evenings in yeah. the metro. So and because, because this is, you're ba- not only are you balancing a, you know, a, a theoretical social life and, and life with your partner, but you and a, a child, but you've got a day job and you're trying to write. Yeah. You know, 
this is the proverbial trying to do everything all at once and only having the amount of time you had before you got twice as many things to do kind of thing, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Um, I think of it as, you know, juggling several balls and some of them are spiky. And there was a friend of mine who, uh, uh, similar to this, and I probably shouldn't mention her name since I haven't asked, but, but she said that her fiction, she was writing short fiction, and you both know who she is, I'll tell you later. Uh, the, as soon as the baby slept through the night, her stories got longer because she had more time. To, so, so it was like actually having a. She was exhausted that she was staying, but she said, "Here's four hours I didn't have for six months. Now I've got it." Uh, and that kind of thing makes makes a huge difference. And Jonathan, you've had two kids during the period of your editorial career when you have to read ten thousand stories a year. Sure, sure, I have, but I think that's very different. I don't think you can really compare, you know, a, you know, a mother who's trying to raise a kid with a dad who's got his balance reading here and there from time to time. So I, I haven't had quite the same burden. I would, I wouldn't for a minute suggest that, um, okay. or at least the same time pressure. I wouldn't say burden's the right word for it. Actually, just off the top, off the top of my head, listening to Gary. Do you find that you write differently for the novel? I mean, you're saying that now you have to put things into compressed bursts of time. You have an hour commute each way home and back, and that's your more coherent writing time. But it's still quite a compressed short period of time. It's not like you're sitting down at 8 o'clock in the morning or 9 o'clock in the morning and writing for four or five hours, and you get that kind of immersive effect. Has it changed how you write, what you write? Um... I write sloppier first drafts uh, because I'm writing them in chapters, so I kind of don't always keep. Mm-hmm. Like in particular, one of the things that I've noticed, especially with the novel, which was I would get like repetitive metaphors or repetitive like entire chunks of sentences that would like get you know copy pasted from like day one to day three because I was like yeah. you know I didn't have the rest of the manuscript to refer to and I was not well not enough bandwidth to actually remember mm-hmm. everything that has been going on before. Um, I'm slower, that's mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and um, and you know, with, like, there's moments where I I now try to like answer like emails and stuff fairly quickly because if I don't, I will forget about them. Sure, all. sure, and, yeah. You know, from well, time yeah. to time, someone will poke me and say, "Hey, what happened?" And I'm like, "Motherhood." <laughs> <laughs> And I'm also curious, I mean, as much as this is a self-contained challenge that happens in your day-to-day life, has the publishing industry been at all sympathetic to, to the time pressures you're under? Or have you still found yourself pushed to meet the kind of deadlines that you would have in the past? I've not noticed anything, a change in deadlines, but I haven't pushed back. So, you know, if I'm, I'm assuming that if I had said... Uh, you know, we were on a fairly punitive schedule for uh, getting the book out because uh, I got my edits in December and uh, the book was coming out in August. So obviously, you need enough lead time to do, you know, edits, second round of edits, copy edits, page proofs, and so on. Um, so I did that in a short period of time, but I didn't have any problems with it per se. Yeah. So okay. my feeling was that if I had said, look, you know, this is insane and I can't do it, things would have you know, shifted rather than yeah. like, say so you're a bad writer. Yeah. And I'm curious as well, is it your goal to end up being a full-time writer if everything goes well? Because, I mean, as I said, I think just before the podcast, uh, House of Shattered Wings seems to be being received really, really well. I mean, um, I will 
now be banned forever from <laughs> <laughs> Seth Warren's out and black. I, 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 I like having a day job. Uh, yeah. I like having something that's not the writing. I One of the things that I've discovered is I, I function extremely poorly in isolation, which is ironic mm. for a writer. Yeah. But um, back when I was in my day job, like about five or six years ago, uh, I had to do a big research project. And I was basically like standing in front of the computer and like reading articles and writing reports all day. And uh, about after about three months of that, I was like going to my boss and was like, look, I need something that actually has me talking to people. Yes, I am going to say, and I feel like if I were a full-time writer, I'm not sure. I'm, I would have more hours in the day. I would be more efficient. Um, well, actually, depends how you measure efficiency in terms of like productivity per day. Certainly, in terms of like you know a per minute or per hour basis, I'm not too sure. But I also feel that I would be losing something, mm-hmm. some kind of external thing that keeps me going. So um, I would rather keep the day job. Yeah, I, I, I've talked to other people who had the same feeling, and it's uh, <clears throat> one of them is Jeff Ford, and he wouldn't mind my saying this. I mean, he was teaching five courses per semester at a community college mm-hmm. for twenty years, and raising a family, and writing, and, and collecting a closet full of world fantasy awards at the same time. <laughs> and that, that's un- it's unnatural to people like me, but to him, that sort of Pressure seemed to spur him on. It's, it, it's, it's, some people simply like to have a, a real-world job. And there's also the question that comes up every once in a while when you're teaching any kind of fiction to students. Do these writers know anything about reality? Have they ever had a job? Because my students, most students, I think, have the idea that writers are all sitting in a garret with people throwing money at them. Um, I wish. <laughs> and I listen to our podcast. Yes, but also partly for me, it's about having, it's, you know, it's, to a large extent I'm aware this is no longer true, but uh, I like the thought that writing is kind of a hobby, it's kind of something that I do for pleasure, and that um, I don't actually have to depend on how it's going, especially financially, which ah. takes a lot of pressure off it, and I well, feel like, you know, I don't know, I I could be wrong about this because I, you know it's not like I've tried, but I worry yeah. that if I went in time, I would be worrying too much about where the mass chat might be coming through. That's sure. an interesting point, and it's that's, that's and, I, and you know it's it's me. I'm yeah. not saying you know this is no, no. everybody. Well, I think I think I think most people would agree uh, that yeah. all these solutions are individual, you know, uh, and it has to be what works in your life and what suits you the best. Uh, and that there aren't any one-stop solutions for these. But, but I'm interested because, you know, as, we, as the field becomes more diverse, as we talk to more, more uh, p- people who aren't from the, that standard old sort of Grinsbeckian continuum, you know, it's interesting to hear how they are living their lives with writing science fiction and fantasy and how it's impacting them. We don't talk about it quite enough. So I'm, I'm glad that we could. Um, <laughs> I'll cut that bit. Just one parenthesis to that. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think Elliot explained something I, I'm going to want to think about some more. There are writers who are, who are in, in tonally revolutionary writers who didn't depend on writing paycheck. The, the name that comes to mind is Cordwainer Smith, who is a professor at Johns Hopkins, Paul Weinberger, very distinguished professor. I actually met somebody who took one of his classes. Uh, and I think the reason he could write Cordwainer Smith stories is that he didn't need to have them published. He didn't need to 
write anything that looked like anything else at all. And it, it, it must have liberated him in some bizarre way. I, I could see that. What I'd also yeah, wonder if it's... Well, 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 is it the difference, though, between... I would assume, though, he'd want them published. I mean, uh, I can understand the, 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 the pressure that's removed when you don't have to make a living from them. But I've always wondered about the act where you write something privately yourself and then put it in a cupboard with no desire to send it out into the world. That always seems mm-hmm. like it misses a key part of the process because don't you want your stories to be read? I mean, I would think that's what you, when you start set to create one, isn't that what you're hoping will happen, Elliot? I mean, I mean, for me, I'd rather be published and read, but I can see why some people would feel that they want the act of writing, they want the act of having produced something. You know, it's... Yeah. Um, you can see why. I mean, it's it's not something that is part of my personal process. I would actually rather like, you know, have it you know published and not necessarily you know get whatever huge amount of money. That's what I was telling my agent. Yeah. Was, you know, I would rather read yeah. than you know. But you'd rather have your stories read than stories that are a compromise between you and what some market developer says. I mean, I mean we go back to the early to the short fiction now, and this is an unusual world. I mean, this is uh, the uh, on a red station, drifting, uh, for example, is is not an immediately accessible world. You have to kind of figure out what's going on, in it. and possibly not now because we really, thanks to, I won't name everybody, but Jonathan, you're one of them. I mean, Gordon Van Geller, all kinds of people. We have smarter editors now. Fifty years ago, you might have sent out a story like that and gotten those back saying, "You just have to explain this and this and this, and we have to have the background, and we have to, have, and you need an info dump here and there." It seems to me that you can take more risks with fiction than you used to be able to. Well, you, uh, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know if that's I mean, true. I mean, I have a feeling that you know that if you take the circle of what is quote unquote um, acceptable or considered as publishable science fiction, um, and there's always the same distance to. Um, the outskirts of it, but just is getting bigger. Mm-hmm. That's my feeling. But so, you know, there's always what falls within the parameter of the genre just widens, and then you know, mm-hmm. ever increasing margins. And you know, different people have different feelings about this. I happen to be in the camp that thinks that it's a good thing. But one of the things about to get back to the House of Shattered Wings. Well, there are a couple of things I want to say, and I mentioned this to you earlier. I think that's a terrific title. Uh, and I think one of the things that happens in fantasy, in, in science fiction a well, while, but in fantasy more, is that titles can be important. And there are titles that are uh, universal. Let's just take, okay, we won't take a, you take a title like The Wheel of Time, and pretty much any narrative that extends more than a week could use that title. It's, it's just a title for th- things happen. Um, and then you take something like... Um, well, okay, I mentioned Cord Wainer Smith. You take a title like Alpha Ralpha Boulevard, no one has any idea what that means. It's completely unparsable. And then there are the titles somewhere in the middle, where the House of is a formulaic beginning for a title. The House of Blue Leaves, uh, the House of X. And then you have this odd image of shattered wings, which makes the title unparsable. We don't know what that could be about. And that's intriguing by itself. I, just, I wanted to say it because it struck me when, before I read the book, I thought, what interests me about this book is that I don't know at all what it's going to be about, hmm. based on the title. Um, would you believe I am really, really bad at titles? Um, 
the, uh, I mean, the title is usually the last thing that I come up with. Uh, I will have, like, untitled or whatever the code word for the story mm -hmm. is. Like, for instance, for, um, um, let me see, uh, like, the one that I did for you for a meeting, Infinity, the code was, like, Plague. Yeah, okay, yeah. After that. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, my, my father's, like, I Plague first draft, like, second draft. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get to the end. <laughs> There's two or three days for short stories of, like, me tearing my hair out and going, like, <laughs> There's got to be a good title out there. And for the novel, I was getting really frustrated because I was like, you know, I, it's not that it's, you know, the novel's good, structurally it's good, thematically, whatever. It's, there has to be something that encompasses what it is about. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was complaining about it on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like tossing out like, you know, I don't know. Uh, I wanted House of Something. It was like mm -hmm. very clear that I wanted House of Something because of the house structure of sure, the yeah. book. Cool. You know, Which makes sense. That's yeah, an important feature. But I wanted something well, that wouldn't be run off the mill, and I couldn't get my finger on one. And we had this chat with several different people, and one of them was Cheryl Holland, who said, well, you know, um, I had suggested Shattered and I had suggested Wings, but I hadn't actually put them together. And she was like, actually, you know, like House of Shattered Wings isn't bad. And I was like, can I steal that? And she was like, be my guest. <laughs> 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 so does that mean that you're now looking for the title for the next one? Uh, my temporary title for the next one I have, so no. I'm well, that's good. good. It's not just code-made House 2. No, it's no. Garden of Something. Okay. Not Earthly Delights, though. That's no. been taken. No. Okay. But, but, Hello, um, Jerry. I guess the other thing is uh, this... Your science fiction was unusual to begin with, and this is a fantasy novel. Does it feel like you're in a different genre at all, or does it feel like you're part of the same amorphous bubble? Um, okay, I'm going to get hounded out of genre. <laughs> I, I don't. I, mean, I think if there's a continuum between uh, hardest stuff and you know, like really like low tech medieval fantasy, and not as an actual like. We have those very clear boundaries, mm -hmm. kind of thing, and I also feel. I mean, personally, the thing that interests me is being in the intersection of several of those genres and subgenres. So I really like science fantasy as a genre, oh, cool. and um, uh, one of the big inspirations for this actually was uh, C.S. Friedman's uh, Cold Fire Rising, mm -hmm. um, which is even partly SF and partly fantasy, and um, one of the things that I really liked doing with that book was keeping that source of like. It is a future. It is, you know, not our future. Uh, but I wanted to play fast and loose with conventions without, you know, being too mm. out there because I want to be nice to my age and not mm. have the poor man from fit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious as well. I mean, since you mentioned C.S. Friedman, who isn't actually brought up very often, I have to say, when you talk about, you know, writers who have inspired or fed into your work. What do you feel were the uh, the sources, the wellsprings, the inspirations for House of Shattered Wings for you? Uh, well, the, the, the bunch of 19th century novels, mm -hmm. as I mentioned. Um, um, oddly enough, David, a bunch of David Gemmell books, which I thought mm. made some very interesting points about, like, um, you know, making stands and um, how you deal with a world that um, is complex and morally ambiguous and um, how, you know, you don't have 
to do extreme feats of arms to be heroes. Um, what else? Um, well, Vietnamese fairy tales, obviously. Mm. Um, and um, some um, Tanya Sui and mm. other like gothic, gothic hero right. uh, novels. And you know, Red Day, but, you know, that brings in a third genre in a way because when you mentioned the gothic influences and, and, and it's not just I, when you when you set it in a post-apocalyptic urban setting you're almost in three genres at once just by doing that I mean <laughs> seriously you, you, you said you nuked Paris well okay yeah it could be a nuclear war something destroyed Paris it could be a war in heaven it could be something like in Charles Williams novel or it could be something from a horror story where you just which are Characteristically, frequently set in ruined areas, and there's a there's an element of horror in this house of shattered winds as well. Well, um, a lot of like, I like my fantasy dark. Mm -hmm. So um, I, um, I mean, um, another big inspiration was Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere, and mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that Neil Gaiman does terrifically well is creepy, um, and I wanted to riff off that. Um, not necessarily consciously, uh, you know, all the stuff about inspiration is mostly thinking on the book. But um, part of what I wanted to do was to have, when you have this gritty dystopian setting, it was mm -hmm. like, you have to have this gritty dark magic to go with it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's, yeah. it doesn't fit. One thing I'm curious about that you mentioned earlier. What is that you said that when you'd completed the Aztec trilogy for Angry Robot, your agent says, you know, said you know, you know, she wanted you to try to write a breakout book. How do you do that? I mean, how do you respond to that? I mean, don't you feel like you're writing the kind of books that you're going to write and you have no control of it? Is there some kind of idea in your mind that goes, oh, that's the idea that could break out? Or, I mean, how do you respond no. to that? Um... I took it as, you know, try to be a little more mainstream, which, mm -hmm. you know, that, well, it didn't work. So. <laughs> well, I mean, there are more mainstream books than the Aztec books, so that is, uh, you know, Paris is a more recognizable setting, and there are, um, mm -hmm. but I also feel that they're very much more ambitious, it's a more ambitious book because, you know, several point of view characters and more complex world building and plot and, well, you know, the, uh, it is a book that I wrote after writing three other books. So well, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that, that, that in itself, you mean, you must have at least felt that you were better placed to write a novel. You, you knew more about uh, structuring and creating one. I mean, I know that it's been apocryphally said that sort of you only get, you learn how to write the book you're writing at the time, but you must have felt four books in that perhaps maybe you're better prepared to try something really ambitious and different. Was, it, was that where you were when you started Shattered Wings? Um, I felt like I wanted to stretch, yeah. Um, the, I mean, I, I mean, ambition, you know, like personal ambition as a writer, of like I have never done this before and I really want to try this, um, which um, is something that I swear by. Uh, you know, always tackle problems head on and create extra ones when there aren't mm -hmm. any. Uh, so... That was very much what I wanted to do. A breakout book, I don't know how to do that, and I don't think anybody knows how to do that. And, you know, I don't think my agent knew it either. He was just trying to say, um, you know, yeah. um, I want you to have success. Oh, let's let's work yeah. together on that. And 
But as a matter of fact, when I sent him the first, the new three first chapters of the book that I was working on, because I was like, okay, well, we've had this chat, and have uh, you thought my novel, and what do you think of this? And he made some, you know, like, noises and so, and after that I sent him the first seven chapters. And um, he was like, he acknowledged it, and he said, uh, look, you know, I'm, I'm a little busy, so it might be a few days before I get back to you. And about the following morning, he was like, okay, whatever you're doing, don't stop. <laughs> I'll do that. Well, there's another mainstream thing that's going on in the House of Shattered Wings, which I, it may or may not be mainstream because that mainstream is a very awkward term. I'm aware that there's a whole right. packing of terms to be done there and trying to reach for like. But something that this novel has in common with a novel we talked about just in last week's podcast, Ian McDonald's Luna, which is set in the moon colony. But both are novels about competing power families. And family contests between families seem to be irresistible to readers. This, uh, Ian, Ian was very open, open about saying he was writing Dallas on the moon. Uh, but it's a good science fiction novel. And I think a lot of the appeal of this novel is that you do have the various houses competing with one another. There's there's internal politics. There's a lot of non-magical manipulation and subterfuge mm. going on it. So someone who doesn't even really care much about where these fallen angels come from is going to see, oh, yeah, vicious families. I can deal with that. My, my family's like that, too. <laughs> exactly. It's like the, the most famous wrong quotation from... Tolstoy is the opening of Anna Karenina, and mm. the happy families are all like, mm. and uh, that's completely wrong. It's <laughs> absolutely <laughs> wrong because he wanted to write about an unhappy family. Uh, but the fact is, families fascinate people, even families in the kind of uh, you know generic power sense that that, that you're using them in, uh, in in this novel. I mean, one of the things that is very important to me, whether I write science fiction or fantasy, is that I really need a human element to anchor it. I feel like you know. Um, whether it's magic or science, there is mm-hmm. no sense of wonder without somebody to actually experience the wonder. And um, a part of that somebody for me is actually the character. And then, you know, to the reader and other concerns. But um, what I really want to do is create characters that you can believe in. I'm not asking you to be necessarily sympathetic to them. And you know, as a matter of fact, in the House of Shadow mm-hmm. Wings, a lot of them are not exactly your best friend. And, you know, a bunch of them are certainly wouldn't sit down for making a few checks. Right run away from very fast, but um, I want them to feel real. I want them to not feel cardboard. I want them to feel right. like like they're people. And I, um, and I want you to, to get behind them in the sense that, um, not necessarily in the sense that you prove 100% of what they're saying or what they're thinking, but that you can understand where they're coming from and you sympathize. And even if you would not have done the same things in the same circumstances, you can see why they're doing those things, and and they make sense, and and they um, they come off as feeling that you know that they could be people that you know, mm-hmm. whether they're fallen angels or Vietnamese immortals or humans. Um, and I'm not saying that you know everybody has to feel human either, because that's not the point. But just um, some someone that you can relate to. And for me, that's a very that's a key element of like writing anything. Yeah. Should we explain for this late in the podcast for people who may not have read the reviews, which are excellent, uh, what the basic premise of the House of Shattered Wings is? We might as well. <laughs> <laughs> just, just in case they've gotten interested in it. Now let's tell them what the novel is about. 
The House of Shattered Wing is set in an alternate version of a turn of the century Paris, where instead of World War I, there was a magical war that was fought between uh, competing factions of fallen angels, and the city was devastated to the point that even 60 years after the war is over, it is still a booby trap post-apocalyptic place. And in the ruins of that, you have various uh, magical factions that are called houses that are still fighting each other, except that they're doing about they're going about it in a very Cold War way of, uh, well, we've had the nuclear apocalypse once, we're not going to have mm. it again. So they're very much looking at each other and trying to outdo each other via subterfuge and via various manipulations. And the plot centers on House of Spires, which is used to be the foremost house in Paris and lost its leader, Lucifer Morningstar, about 20 years before the book starts and has been on the slow slope into ruin. And one night they find a new and very powerful fallen angel and things change. Mm -hmm. Which is intriguing and it raises another sort of genre issue that um, that, that bothers me a long... It, it doesn't bother me in any serious way in the long term. But it's the, it's the use of the term urban fantasy. Um, urban fantasy once meant fantasies that took place in cities. That seems simple enough. Oh, I mean, yeah, I've had this argument. Yeah, okay. You're, you're the second person who <laughs> had this argument today. Yeah, that's Michelle Sagara. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. Michelle has very strong opinions. But go ahead and finish your thought. <laughs> no, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm not describing it as a urban fantasy, even though it is a technical accurate, technically accurate term, because in the North American market and in genre market, that has come to mean something else altogether. That's exactly my point. A different set of reader expectations. I, I want to get urban urban fantasy at one point before before Neil Gaiman. There was a a, a, a British writer named Charles Williams, who's part of the Inkling, a friend, and his his. Fantasies of London, which were theological fantasies, novels like Descent into Hell and so forth, uh, were clearly fantasy novels that depended on an urban setting. And I thought, there's a lot to be said here. Uh, China Miedo's New Probazon is a fantasy that evolves from its urban setting. Urban fantasy ought to mean something other than horny little vampire girls <laughs> and, and both and whatever in between. Uh, I in other words, I'm championing stories like The House of Shattered Wind because I think we need to win, and, and I realize marketing is a separate thing. I would like to get the term urban fantasy back to referring to urban fantasies. Um, and for heaven's sake, Twilight, which started this, isn't even urban. It's some small town here in Washington well, it State. Well, it wasn't Twilight anyway. It was probably something like Laurel K. Hamilton or something that oh. pushed it off, off in that direction. Because, I mean, when I first encountered urban fantasy, it was the work that Terry Windling was editing for Ace in the mid-1980s. It was, it was, it was Charles DeLint and people like that. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it was, you know, creating fictional cities, having, it, it was that breaching of, fantasy into the real world in an urbanized city environment. Whatever that magic was, that's what, what, what urban mm -hmm. fantasy was. Now it seems to be tramp stamps and sort of tight leather and trashiness or whatever else it is, with, with, which is fine because it's entertaining for people, but it's a separate thing. I don't know that you, you'll ever, though, will rescue or repurpose, Gary, the, the, the fantasy of the city as urban fantasy again. I think that ship has sailed. I think we should come up with a new term. 
Not right now, obviously. No, 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 not right now. I mean, I also it's like it's it, it doesn't make the books any less interesting. I mean, because the real <laughs> surely the real attraction of any form of urban fantasy is that it's um it's the it's the non-real, it's the fantastical, the magical, encroaching into the environment, you know, the, the environments that we live in. And, I mean, the, the attraction of Shattered Wings surely must be, for someone in Paris at least, that underneath it all there is this landscape that they understand and appreciate. There's a, stru- a structure laid out geographically for the city, and Notre Dame is here, and the Seine flows there, and this is how mm-hmm. that is, and this is how that is. And so it has a kind of immediacy for anyone who's experienced that that in, that environment. And that, you know, it's... it's I mean, obviously, it's a terrific shortcut or basis or structure for world building, but it's also um, a great way to engage your reader more. I mean, particularly when you're going with quite famous uh, iconographic kind of places like Notre Dame. That's I mean, true. it must help. Yeah. I mean, Notre Dame has been a source of story t- stories for centuries. I mean, you couldn't leave the it the out, main, could you? Hmm? The, the main reason why it's Notre Dame is because... I needed a house that was in the geographical center of the city, and that was Ile de la Cité. Uh-huh. Yeah. And well, it's really hard to talk about Ile de la Cité without having of course, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was part of the reason. That, I mean, the reason it's called Silver Spires actually is because um, before the renovations that got done in the 19th century, Ile de la Cité used to be the highest concentration of churches in Paris. Okay, which is you know oh. this this nice. Kind of like, I mean, all the houses' names are like those little Easter eggs of Parisian history. Yeah. This is Silver Spires. Well, I think that, that may be part of it, maybe part of my reaction as well. And, the, and I'm, I'm going to keep harping on this urban fantasy thing <laughs> a little bit because fa- cities are magical and every city is magical in its own way. And okay, now Paris is something, when I, I didn't go to Paris until I was probably in my 50s for the first time. And my idea of Paris. It was uh, Victor Hugo's, partly The Hunchback of Notre Dame. A lot of it was from Hemingway's Immovable Feast or from Gertrude Stein. Mm. Um, and the thing that amazed me about it is that all the stuff I expected to see there was there. You know, I could, you know, I could uh, sit in the same cafe that Camus and Sartre were sitting in in, in, mm. in, in, in the left bank. And, uh, I could sit in a restaurant that Benjamin Franklin had been in. And so I thought, this is astonishing because... It's a cliche, but you know the magic is there. But it's it's not brought. It needs to be brought out. It needs to be fantastified in some way. It's 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 an implicit fantasy novel, and every great city is like this. Except I say London has been done to death. There's a actually a very good uh, fantasy novel about New York in the 1840s. Alexander Irving's The Scattering of Jades. He figured out what magic was there at that time. Hmm. And there's something to be said for extracting the magic that's inherent in a city. Uh, and you can't do that really in an invented city. You have to do one with a recognizable iconography. And secondly, which is the other thing I liked uh, and haven't mentioned yet about the House of Shattered Wings, a lot of recognizable and believable interiors. This is not a city that's set in a tourist landscape. You can't even walk across the bridges of the sand because you're going to get gobbled up by God knows what. Well, you can. You just have to run very fast. <laughs> But this, the novel has a lot of interiors in it, and there, there is a claustrophobic feeling to much of it, even when you're in this grand ruined dome of uh, the Gallery Lafayette. Um, so there's a sense of interiority 
that needs to be conveyed in stories like this. And I'm making less and less sense as I go on, aren't I? No, I think, I think okay. it's, it's the difference between having the tourist version and having the lived-in mm-hmm. version. And, uh, and part of the lived-in version is like um, the soul of the city, the, the history of how you got mm-hmm. there. I'm, I'm a big believer in history, so that's probably informs how I see things. But uh, like, a lot of these interiors, for instance, is stuff that I have seen, stuff that I have experienced, mm. and you know, and sometimes my grandparents' house. I'm not going to tell you which bits, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's like it is a um, for me, um, like interiors in particular are a very good way to get across well-building, to get across how people live, how um, you know what their daily life is like, and I think you know. Much as a novel is not, I mean, this is not really a novel concerned with the daily life of mm-hmm. people. There are novels that are, but this isn't one of them. But I feel it's very, it grounds it to have this going on. That it's part of what makes it feel real. And it, it, it also part of what makes it feel claustrophobic because that was a deliberate move by me. Because mm-hmm. I wanted to have this kind of release in Mr. Creepy atmosphere. Right, but it was, but, but they're interiors that that match the exteriors in a way that because having been on the, the all these connected buildings on the Adelaide, you can see how this works. You can understand what the relationships are between the walls and the stairways and the basements and the various chambers in them. Unlike uh, what I think happens in a lot of fantasy set in cities, is that the cities are essentially Hollywood movie sets from the 1940s. Uh, they are interiors that have draperies and sort of golden mm. arches and there's you, there's no exterior to go with that interior. Well, um, one of the huge problems I ran into when I was writing the Obsidian Blood series was that about halfway after I finished the first draft of book one, I was like, I genuinely have no idea how to get across the sacred precinct or what the sacred precinct, which was the heart of the, like, where the midst of the book's location mm. where. I, I don't know what is where, <laughs> and so I had to retro-engineer like from a map of the place, like, oh, this is here, this is here, this is uh-huh. here. For this book, I was like, okay, I'm going to print a Google map of the city, and I'm, cool. I'm going to draw, like, uh, I don't think I have it, actually, because I left it at home, but uh, I have the, the, the Google map, and, like, overlaid over the Google map, I have, so this is where the North Wing is, this is where the East Wing cool. is, and, and I wanted to make sure that, you know, things would actually look okay yeah. from, like, a geographical point of view and the same thing is at one point um, one of the characters takes a, an omnibus ride from uh, Ile de la Cité to um, La Goutte d'Or which is this uh, working class neighborhood that is in the north of Paris and the same I was like okay let's take you know a map of Paris and like okay let's draw a line and okay the bus would have gone mm-hmm. this way not quite straight because there aren't any streets and like those are the major sites that you would have seen, and so on. To um, you know, it's, it's small things, but like um, one, um, the Da Vinci Code, right? Um, I threw the book across the room because <laughs> in uh, the first um, few chapters, uh, the guy managed to completely uh, misplace the American Embassy in Paris, and mm. then proceed to go catch a train at Gare Saint Lazare, which you could not catch at this hour of the night. But also more. Only at Gaston Lazare you couldn't catch a train to the place you wanted to go uh-huh. to. And I was like, seriously, Google it, man. It's not that hard. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm ready to grant you that, you know, 
not knowing that at two o'clock in the morning you cannot get trains in Paris is a little more complicated. But like not knowing that at Gare Saint Lazare there are no trains that go like on the They go to that one. place, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah, yeah. And in fact, one thing I was told was when they translated it into French, they actually had to correct all the mistakes that you had made. And you know, this, <laughs> and one of the things that I really want to do is like if you have been to Paris, if you live in Paris, I don't want mm. you to feel like you know I've like failed research one on one. Although in some cases sure. I have. You know, shifted the history of the city to like make a slightly different configuration that that makes me wonder actually have you had any response to the book from uh french reviewers yet i have uh i have uh, a couple of french guys who've read it yeah um and who um um one guy who really really liked it and someone who read the first chapter and had like objections to stuff that i was doing hmm. but to do with like uh class politics which, um, I don't know. Um, I'd be curious to see what the rest of it is. Are, are you nervous about how French readers will receive the book since they have that, that they actually are, as you were saying with the Dan Brown thing, they're on the ground, they, they, they will pick up the clashes and the, the errors that would bother them? Well, yeah, a little, but then I'm nervous about a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a bit of use. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm curious as well because a lot of the reviews are coming out already. The, the, you know, the, you know, the books in, actually in shops at the moment. Um, have there been any responses that have surprised you? Mm. I mean, I don't know. If surprise is the right word, but like, I'm always like, in, like it's fascinating because like when when you put a book out there, I mean, I have my personal idea of you mm. know. What, what the book looks like from my point of view, but obviously everybody comes to it with a slightly different experience. Sure. And there's been a bunch of reviews about um, how, you know, this is like um, um, terrible people doing terrible things to each other. And I was, um, I, I guess I can see the point, but um, I can't remember what the exact wording was, but it was something about like, um, like, it was something about like showing the seedy underbelly of Paris uh, under the layer of beauty or something like that. And I was like, actually, I think of it the other way. I think of it like this is just really like seedy dystopian setting. And my point was that mm. you have moments of awe, moments of wonder, moments of heroism, and you know, yes, very very fucked up people doing very fucked up things, but that's what people do. Yeah. I mean, actually, that sort of half begs, begs the question, and it ties into Gary's discussion about urban settings. Um, is there is there an issue when you are cre- creating a post-apocalyptic France, which basically, or uh, Paris, which you've basically done, that people's romanticized versions of Paris that are projected onto it will get in the way of what they read as they go through your book? I generally have no idea. Um, I can answer that. I have the most. I still have the most stupidly romantic notions of Paris because I know it's a cliche, and I know from Aliot's point of view that if I if I really really want to go and sit and I do my, my go and have you know espresso all afternoon, everybody's been doing that for eighty years now, and it's not new. Um, there's a sense that I had every time I've been in Paris that something is going on there that I don't know about. And I don't want to go on the Paris sewer tours and I, all, all, all the kind of gothic Paris stuff. There's a sense of eminence in the city that is more or less made explicit in the novel. Hmm. Okay, fair. Hmm? And, it's, it, and the best urban novels can do that, whether they're fantasy or science fiction or not, or, 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 or 
uh, or, or realistic fiction. I mean, one of the things one of the things people don't realize you're mentioning uh, Hugo or Dumas and that sort of thing. The amount of time spent describing the cities in, some, in, in something like *A Hunchback* and *The people don't remember that these novels are a thousand pages long. <laughs> these, you know, each of these classic nineteenth-century French novels are at least the equivalent of a modern trilogy. And there's a lot of scene setting and a lot of description of architecture and a lot of description of streets and a lot of... Because when I was a kid, you could read the classic comics version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame and you realize, that's not that long a story, is it? Why was it a thousand pages? The first answer to this is it was serialized and they were paid by the page. Right, exactly. Which has always been a cynical opinion of some longer passages. Like There's a passage in Les Miserables where... Uh, Victor Hugo gives him a very lyrical description of the man drowning, and I'm like, yeah, right, but I really want to know what happens to the And the other is that uh, back in the day, also, novels were seen as um, an educational process, and so mm-hmm. they were at the same time as they were having this plot driven thing, which is what mainly interests you as a 21st century reading because reader, because this is how most novels work today. Um, they thought of that as just one element of what was going on. So they also, you know, it's like Jules Verne's little lectures on uh, science. Because yeah. it was also meant to be something that people could learn from. So there was, I mean, it's actually um, the novels that time hasn't necessarily remembered anymore. So I was reading up on the history of um, domestic workers in Paris and the novels mm-hmm. that they were given. And, and these are even, like, very heavy on the education Okay. Well, one of the things, and similarly, any number of British novelists I know have owned a copy of a 19th century book by Henry Mayhew called uh, London Labor and the London Poor, I think it was called, which is a, a massive volume full of absolutely appalling details about what lower class people lived like in London uh, in the century. I mean, I, uh, most of the people we've had on the podcast in London novels have that book. So there is that sense of realism, I guess, that uh, that, that, that has to come across. Uh, but you're you're right; it doesn't have to come across at seventy pages set a shot. I think it's, it's one of the things that I'm very much aware of is that you know what we define as a novel has mm-hmm. like really changed, and also it really depends on like if you look at a like the Chinese classics, really don't have the same idea of what a novel should be or um, what um, like you know, it comes from a place of uh, being informed by historical chronicles and mm. by um, the structure of, like the Chinese classics is showing you interweaving storylines that contrast and answer each other instead of being this very like there's a plot and we have to solve mm. the plot and uh, like for instance or mysteries where you know part of it is like um they know who to cover it is. They don't really care about like getting the answer to that question. It's more about like how do you play yeah. a kind of chess game between the guy who's doing the investigating and, and the, the culprit. So it's, yeah. it's really fascinating. <laughs> okay. So I, I take it that once World Fa- Worldcon is over, you're back home to dive back into the, you know, the second House of Shattered uh, Wings book and, then, and more short fiction and stuff? Or, or, or what's, that, what's the actual plan from here? Uh, well, I got rid of most of the short fiction that I had to do this summer. That was my big summer push. Yep. And then, uh, so I'm 
um, until I'm done with the novel. I, I can't like simultaneously work on a novel and short fiction, so I'm going to do mm. the novel and we'll see where that goes. And then I have you know more short fiction lined up, but it's going to have to wait until I have a first draft. Yeah. If the novels are moving in the direction of the fantasy, does that mean that the short fiction might be as well? Uh, fair some fantasy fiction, but like, um, I mean, my novels are all fantasy, really. So well, yeah, it's not really what I would call a movement. And actually, uh, one of the things that I have on the back burner is doing a, a fix-up, uh, like three or four novellas, uh-huh. science fiction thing. So it's mostly well, not. Oh yeah. So, so basically, right now, to you know, sort of get the sequel done. Hopefully, enjoy having this this major new novel out. Um, has it been just quickly a, a really different experience having a book come out from two different publishers on the opposite sides of the Atlantic as opposed to having one UK-based publisher put out your book? How's it been moving up to the majors, as it were? It's, well, I mean, it's, it's been very different in terms of scale, obviously. Uh, and also, yeah, the whole um, having two publishers on either side of the Atlantic putting the same book at the same time certainly has been a very interesting process mm-hmm. in terms of, like, having two editors and then having to deal with different timelines and you know a little more coordination being necessary to make sure that everyone's on the same page or something so it's um, you know I, I have no idea how representative it is of anything but certainly very different experience and well I mean it is my first novel in five years so obviously things have changed as well yeah and we won't be waiting five years for the sequel I hope no well my deadline's shorter than that. <laughs> well, I guess. Well, I mean, it is. Yeah, uh, your nerds are approaching when I start mourning and mourning and bitching on Twitter. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, and the fact that it's a duology is. Uh, I mean, I always find that encouraging because it, it, it's. Because it implies to me that there's a structure that says this is going to end in two books. As opposed to trilogies, because any number of trilogies are actually duologies with a bunch of stuff in the middle, um, and or or, in, or indefinite series, series mm. that go on for six or seven or eight books. So, so there is a sense, and there's a sense of an arc beginning in the House of Shattered Wings, uh, and I do, sometimes as a reader, I get a sense of an arc and where it is at the point. Like this is going to sound either arrogant or irrational or both. That sometimes at the end of volume one you realize we're only a quarter of a way along this arc and there's a lot of stuff left. Sometimes you feel like we're about eighty percent done with the arc and it had better be a big smash ending because it's there's not that much left story story left to tell, and that's kind of what you have to decide as a writer. Well, I mean, I mean, for me, it's almost nearly a standalone book in the sense that I left a few plot points mm. hanging in the air but uh, thematically there's a lot of stuff that I didn't get into this book that I want to get into the next I, I was thinking thematically and mythologically more than in mm. terms of the surface narrative mm. yes because for anybody who's worried this is a fully self-contained book and we wouldn't want to yeah. say yeah. Yeah. I don't want to give you the impression the, the plot, that you're going to get to the out. end yeah. you know the plot works and you're yeah. done by time but as you say it's a mystery what we want to know about this is not who done it? It's not satisfying some unresolved questions. It's how this thing really works. Mm. What's really going on here? Because there's more to it than <laughs> we've seen before. I know. 
No pressure. Okay, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> well, well, on that cheery <laughs> note, we have. <laughs> we have sort of got towards the end, yeah, the end, sort of towards the hour where we normally wind up. So we might let you get back to the rest of your convention, uh, and hopefully sort of get to enjoy the the, the evening there and what's happening in, in in sunny, well, smoky Spokane. And you know, sort of, we should tell you know tell everybody again clearly that House of Shattered Wings is out now. It's in bookstores around the world. Please, sort of, this is the time to support a book if you're going to. So please. If you're interested in, in, or have been interested by the podcast, consider running out and buying a copy. Until then, thank you very much, Elliot, for making the time to join us today. It's really appreciated. Thank you for having me. And Gary, we shall talk again soon. Absolutely. Okay.